0: You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at crika.wisc.edu.
1: Thanks, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, who is... Sam Green, who is professor of Russian politics at King's College in London, and he's also uh, doing a scene as director of Democratic Resilience, or is it for Democratic Resilience, at the Center for European Policy Analysis, a think tank in Washington D.C. So, Sam, uh, I, you know, I, I think probably most people in the room are familiar with his work. Uh, he is an expert on political attitudes, political behavior, also uh, media. And particularly, he's worked on collective action and protest movements in Russia. Uh, his book, Moscow in Movement, was came out with uh, Stanford University Press. Uh, it was a study of, I think it was 2014. If yep. it. Uh, that book was a, a, a very important analysis of uh, mobilization in Russia, uh, oppositional mobilization, studying sort of both the... Um, opportunities and also the constraints that, that movements face in Russia. Uh, more recently, he and Graham Robertson published a book called, um, it was eventually titled, Putin versus the People, although uh, <laughs> apparently that was not the, the author's choice of the title, so I, I can let <laughs> Sam address that if he feels like it. That was uh, Yale University Press 2019, and it uh, is one of uh, a series of very important books uh, analyzing the nature of politics and regime society relations, under the Putin regime. Um, so uh, today's talk uh, is entitled Power and Powerlessness in Wartime Russia, and uh, let's join in welcoming Sam. Look forward to his thoughts on this important topic.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, uh, Ted, and thank you for the opportunity to um, to be here. Thank you to all of you. i see seen a lot of empty spaces at the table, and a lot of people who aren't sitting at the table, so it's not my room, but... <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Anyone's um, welcome to come to the table. But please, like. um, you know, thank you very much, uh, to Ted, to Jennifer, and to everybody here for, for the opportunity uh, to be here, to everybody in the room for the opportunity for the conversation. This is meant to be uh, an exploration, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about why I want to, but I'm hoping that that uh, we'll get into uh, conversations, so hopefully somebody will keep me honest on the time and tell me that I'm droning on too long, and then we can. Uh, I'll try to stop and we can get into um into some debate um, uh, on this. Um, also, should probably acknowledge all of the the the, uh, the researchers whose work I'm going to try to draw on in talking about some of these things, um, including the ones who I don't agree with, uh, but I do appreciate. Uh, I do appreciate all of them. I don't think any of them are actually in the room, um, so that might help. But um, uh, but this is again sort of a, an attempt to uh, uh, to rethink my own analytical practice. Uh, focusing on contemporary Russian politics um, in a world that's changed, in a world in which I got a lot wrong, right, as I'm probably not alone in that uh, in, in the last, um, you know, 18 months or so. Um, uh, and, um, but also in which researching Russia both methodologically and conceptually and theoretically the ways that, that, that I used to doesn't seem to be available anymore. Um, also an attempt to try to think about, you know, maybe some cautious conclusions, although they may not sound cautious, they're meant to be cautious conclusions about um, what we've seen in Russian politics over the last um, 12 months um, uh, or, uh, or so. Um, some of this may sound familiar if you read some of the stuff that I've written, so apologize uh, for that uh, uh, ahead of time, but I'm trying to draw on some ideas, including some ideas going back, actually, to my PhD research and, and other things to try to, again, look at this um, uh, uh, in the round. Uh, I will um, make a couple of apologies uh, ahead of time. One is to um, any uh, basketball fans uh, in the room for for the performance of my Northwestern Wildcats against uh, against Wisconsin. Um, And also, more seriously, for not talking about Ukraine. It's very difficult, I think, emotionally, not to focus on Ukraine Um, at the moment. I'm not, however, a researcher or an expert uh, on Ukraine. I don't have anything to say other than um, uh, to express my horror and and solidarity, um, this conversation is going to be entirely about Russia, at least from from my perspective. Um, so, uh, with all that out of the way, in um, 1993, the Polish sociologist Piotr Stomka wrote about Homo Sovieticus, uh, and he talked about it as not a cultural or or a biological category, right, but as frankly, a kind of diagnosis, although he didn't use that term. I'm going to use that term on his behalf. He's talked about it as specifically, quote, a civilizational incompetence, right? Um, which would need to be overcome if Russians and other post-Soviet and post-socialist peoples were going to enter what he referred to as, quote, true modernity, right? authentic uh, democracy, functioning market economy, and open society. Um, He focused in particular on seven cognitive binaries, um, private versus public, Past versus present, fate versus agency, negative versus positive freedom, freedom from versus freedom to, right? uh, mythology versus realism, west versus east, and expediency versus truth. And he argued that people suffering from the civilizational incompetence would reliably come down on the wrong side of each of these binaries, uh, and that the result right, in the aggregate was a group of people, a community of people right, who were inherently averse to their own political, economic, and social agency, living in the expectation that problems and solutions would both come from outside the realm of their own action. Twenty years later, uh, Myron Aronoff and Jan Kubik challenged that uh, 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 argument in an essay and then in, in a book um, conducting an ethnographic study of two localities in Poland in particular and found that it was, quote, hard to detect in them any cultural scenarios or norms of passivity or waiting for manna from heaven. Rather, uh, Aronoff and Kubik argued, they found that their research subjects were, nearly, uh, were neither necessarily defensive nor incompetent, that they would often plot offensive actions. Um, Aronoff and Kubik wrote, and again I quote, such plotting usually occurs from within culturally constructed social worlds that are often local or regional. In order to explain and understand people's actions, their conception of the world and their life strategy, including their economic choices and their political sympathies, researchers need to study vernacular knowledge. They need to reconstruct locally developed cultural scenarios that provide at least partial guidance for people who try to navigate the complex and changing worlds around them. Now, I'm not here to relitigate old and mostly, I think, unproductive debates about the idea of homo um, or to try to compare Russians to Poles or to anyone else for that matter. I'm, I'm, uh, it's not, not my work. I am, however, interested and have been for some time in this idea of vernacular knowledge, and I'd like to expand on that. Uh, a bit. So drawing on approaches from anthropology, Aronoff and Kubik identify five core characteristics of vernacular knowledge. Right? It's, it's anchored in common sense, right? it's internal to the individuals and in the communities who hold it. It's defensive rather than offensive. It's local, and that was already mentioned in their in their quote, and it's slow to change. Right? It tends to be inertial. When applied to the study of politics, then vernacular knowledge refers to the sum of what citizens understand uh, in their own understanding, right? not uh, an outside objective understanding, if that's even possible, about where power is and is not located, about how it may and may not be accessed and wielded, about what should and should not be expected from relationships of domination. In a context in which there might appear to be um, an ever-widening chasm between the, the formal categories of expression and behavior uh, that have mostly currency in political science um, and the reality in which our research subjects actually live, particularly in Russia today, studying vernacular knowledge, I would argue, can afford us a useful corrective. Right? It can help us to see how power is experienced and assimilated from a citizen's perspective. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, it's most often done ethnographically, in part, I think, because the concept originates in anthropology, but also because if you were to attempt to express vernacular knowledge directly and, and thus to elicit it in a structured manner through formal interviews or surveys or other um, uh, uh, larger-end methods, you're inevitably going to distort the content of, of, of this vernacular knowledge. It's not codified, right? and I think it's not codifiable, at least not very easily by those who hold it, right? It's reflexive, it's generated and regenerated, not through civics lessons and, and, and such, but through learned habits of action uh, and, and inaction. Um, ethnography, unfortunately, is largely off the table for students of Russia um, at, uh, at the moment, although there's been uh, arguments by Jeremy Morris and others that we need to um, uh, get this back into our practice and learn to work with uh, scholars in the field, even in difficult circumstances, to... Um, uh, To accomplish it. Digital tools may help us keep at least some traction, but I think even the most sophisticated digital methods are going to struggle, continue to struggle, to bridge the gap between offline and online behaviors. And so I'm not proposing a solution to this problem. I don't have one. If you have one, I'm very happy to hear about it. Um, What I'm going to try to talk about is an impressionistic attempt to map an agenda for research um, uh, rather than a systematic attempt at that research itself. Um, Now, back in the 1990s, right, when ethnographic research in Russia was arguably at its peak, authors like my PhD supervisor, Sarah Ashwin, um, at the LSC, Michael Borowoy, and others saw ordinary Russian citizens retreating to familiar arm's length structures of support and problem solving, right? Um, This was a response um, uh, uh, to a process in which what we used to call transition, right, um, was lengthening the material political and cognitive distances between the state and its citizens. A decade and a half um, after Putin first came to power, Jeremy Morris, I mentioned a moment ago, found similar dynamics uh, in his long-running ethnographic study of the anonymous city that he named uh, Izluchino, a down-at-the-heels-industrial former monotown um, in Russia. Morris wrote in 2016 that, again, I quote, While fragility and loss are at the heart of the experience of industrial urbanity in Russia, its ethos is the propertizing of social life in spite of insecurity. At the same time, it is impossible to understand the production of the local in isolation from the context of the neighborhood as a social form. While the post-socialist present, he wrote, is fraught with uncertainty and danger, isluchino is produced as a place by the compressed social geography that emerges from the overwhelmingly blue-collar nature of the ex-monotown. This pertains both to the sense of security, which he puts in in scare quotes, comfort and habitability of being at home, among others, and the continuing experience of the town as a semi-closed-off site where exploitation and risk are managed far away from the wealthier cities. Thus, uh, Morris' Isluchina as a geographic and a social locale impoverished and insecure, as it may seem to an outside observer, was to its citizens a more secure and more prosperous place than Russia's boom towns elsewhere in the country, precisely because it was imbued with their own understanding of both problems and solutions, uh, of where threats might emerge and how they might be overcome. Right? So from Morris's work then, as, as earlier from Ashwins and Burawoys and and others, we see a, a political knowledge emerging, a vernacular knowledge uh, that from the citizen's perspective does not extend very much beyond arm's length. A similar conclusion, I think, arises from Ellen Mitzkevich's 2014 semi-ethnographic study of the media habits of young Russians, um, people who, unlike Morris's or Ashwin's subjects, almost entirely were socialized since Putin came to power. Much of Mitzkevich's uh, uh, subject's energy in offline interactions, I might call normal interactions, was spent trying to ascertain and project trustworthiness. Often this came down to markers that were easily visible, right? uh, including physical appearance, mannerisms, affluence, and ethnicity, and, and, and race, frankly. Right? She wrote that participants in the study can read a person if he mirrors them. Trust involves looking like you. Mitzkevich's subjects were averse to the idea of reputation. They preferred not to rely on hearsay about a person, but to establish their own first-hand or arm's-length experience. Uh, online, of course, that task becomes more difficult, uh, as none of the, the usual sort of in-group markers were verifiably visible, at least. Uh, and on-screen interactions didn't provide the same kind of first-hand trust-building opportunities uh, that face-to-face interactions can afford. Instead, Mitskevich found that her subjects looked to their interlocutors' expressed opinions and interpretations, including of politics, uh, as markers of normalcy. Um, the Russian word adekvatnost is much better in this context. It conveys a deeper sense of, of sort of social and intellectual appropriateness and adequacy and maybe even sanity. Uh, and uh, and that's a partial indication of of trustworthiness. So mediated communication, right, could help extend trust beyond the geographically bounded localities that that Morris was writing about. Um, But social and ideational distances and closeness, right, still remained salient. So locality in the social rather than the geographic sense is still central to this story. Indeed, part of the argument I'm trying to make here is that the idea of the local, not in a naively geographical sense, but rather a locality bounded by the furthest distance a citizen might expect her power to extend, is central to understanding the boundaries of how Russians understand citizenship itself. Now, it's probably um, not before time to note that I've been talking about power without defining it, Um, so a definition. Um, For the non-academics in the room, um, I apologize in advance if this is a little arcane, but I'm uneasy with the standard political science approaches that often equate power to coercion, the ability to force people to do things they might otherwise not want to do, and I'm guided instead by two sets of intuitions that emanate from sociology. I should make a further caveat, which is that um, I have a piece of paper somewhere that says that I'm a political sociologist. Uh, in practice, what that means is the political scientists think I'm a sociologist, and the sociologists think I'm a political scientist. And I, and I hide in a Russian studies department um, uh, when, when the criticism gets to be too much. So apologies to the sociologists in the room for what I may be about to butcher. Um, one of these intuitions comes from Ivan uh, Ermakov, uh, who notes that, quote, threats do not work as such. But they work when groups allow themselves to be impressed. Now, in my reading of this argument, um, that allowance to be impressed emerges uh, uh, as the product of processes of interaction, both within groups and between groups. We acquiesce to power when um, uh, we we acquiesce to power or believe that we wield power on the other side of that coin. because we see similar beliefs reflected in the behaviors and the discourses of other people around us, again, either in our group or in, in other groups. this does not deny the facts of threats and coercion. They can be present in this equation. But it promises to take seriously the ways in which coercion is understood by those whom we behe- believe to have been coerced, right, even or maybe especially if they themselves do not believe themselves to have been uh, uh, coerced, which is often, uh, often the case. Second intuition comes from Neil Flickstein and Doug McAdams' work on strategic action fields. Uh, And in particular, the rather simple observation, I think, that in most relationships between dominant incumbents and dominated challengers, relatively few challengers actually openly contest their subordinated status. So in the general absence of such contestation, the exercise of power as such is a relatively rare thing. Power isn't present in Flickstein and McAdams' uh, uh, theory in a settled strategic action field, or more precisely, it's not held by actors, right? Um, As incumbents and challengers find themselves in their superior and subordinate roles through force of habit rather than through force of coercion, uh, and structures of governance and resource distribution are vestiges of prior settlements. Where the power actually lies, right, needs to be discovered or rediscovered through contestation, Power is kind of uh, a terra incognita, to which claims are staked, right, when people decide that that um, uh, uh, that they are going to contest their positions, right. Um, but that very fact of contestation, right, presumes uncertainty. It, it presumes uh, a disagreement, in fact, about who holds that power and who might be able to win out in, in a conflict. So that brings me back to Russia, because alongside locality, I think uncertainty is the second key aspect of of vernacular political knowledge in Russia that emerges from my reading of the literature and and from my own research. Indeed, uncertainty features prominently in most of the literature on post-Soviet Russian politics. The emergence of post-Soviet Russia itself is a, a story largely about the breakdown of signaling mechanisms, right? The economic signals that are bound up in prices and currencies, the political signals that are bound up in ideology, the threat signals that are bound up in the public use of force, and so on. The coping mechanisms that Sarah Ashwin described as patience or that Michael Burowoy and his co-authors described as involution allowed many Russians to survive the dislocations of transition uh, by using the certainties of the local and the informal as a hedge against the uncertainties of the national and the formal. But as the Russian economy began to grow in the 2000s, as Putin was coming to power and oil prices are coming up and reforms began to kick in, many Russians began to enjoy prosperity that they had never before known. And yet, these defensive practices persisted. Russians seem to retain what the Russian sociologist Lev Gutkov calls the inertia of passive adaptation. In other words, the learned habit of muddling through. I don't want to question the ability of Russians to muddle through, um, but I do take issue with the characterization. Russians, I would argue, are not passive. They are aggressively immobile. It's not a matter of semantics, uh, or at least not only semantics. Passive people, I think, are easily, maybe not easily led, but they're relatively easily pushed from one position uh, to another, and there's, there's a stance of, of implicit trust and, and acquiescence uh, in passivity. Aggressively immobile people, I've argued, are difficult to move in any circumstance uh, because their immobility is strategic and it's rational, um, in an environment in which you don't have a lot of impersonal social institutions. Right? People don't see um, generalized and replicable pathways to success. As a result, the relative, whatever relative comfort and prosperity people enjoy uh, or may have come to enjoy uh, is likely to be perceived as the result of a singular, unique, individualized set of circumstances owing more or less exclusively to that citizen's ability to cope with uh, her uncertain environment, and the pronoun is not, um, is not accidental. Russian women have tended to do this much better than Russian men. Um, indeed, we've seen this aggressive in- immobility undermine a raft of things that, for good or for ill, the supposedly very powerful Russian government has sought to do since Vladimir Putin came to power. Right? So the reform of social welfare benefits in 2004-2005, which sought to replace in-kind benefits with cash payouts. The reform of university entrance procedures, which replaced on-site exams <coughs> with national standardized tests um, in order to reduce corruption and increase mobility. The creation of homeowner's associations to give residents more control over uh, the maintenance of their their buildings and a share of the value of the land on which the buildings stood. All of these were, on the face of a textbook, liberalizing, rationalizing reforms having very little to do with authoritarianism. Uh, And all of them were fiercely resisted. In some respects, they were fatally sabotaged by bottom-up resistance, precisely because they all threatened to force people out of the informal, individualized, arms-length relationships that gave them certainty, and into formal, impersonal relationships that, in terms of citizens' vernacular understanding of power, lacked the fundamental building blocks of trust. More recently, similar patterns of resistance have upended everything from the introduction of highway tolls for long-distance truckers. Uh, to the government's attempts to combat the uh, uh, COVID 19 pandemic, and even to the so called partial mobilization uh, begun in the fall of 2022 to draft men to fight in Ukraine. When this resistance does emerge, it begins or tends to begin with the perception that the phenomenon in question, right, whether it's social benefits reform or the military draft, is in fact a threat to those localized structures of security and prosperity on which a citizen relies. Given the vernacular knowledge I'm attempting to describe, uh, the initial response tends to be an individualized one. Right, As a citizen seeks a personal route out of this threat, right? if that route fails or if it's blocked by the state, will often give rise to a collective response, frequently in the form of protest. Crucially, though, it's the state itself that generates these protests. Right? By blocking individualized solutions and thus forcing people um, uh into a collective response similarly when the protests whether the protests escalate right as they frequently do forcing the state to back down also depends on whether the state continues to treat protesters as an undifferentiated group in which protests are likely to continue to escalate or reverts back to a flexible individualized uh, approach uh, in which protests are likely to to dissipate um, now, there are likely quite a number of problems um, with uh, pretty much everything I've just said, but there's at least two that I find particularly glaring. Um, one is the question of how well any of this stands up in what we've seen in the war, which is to, what I'm supposed to be talking about today, so I will get there soon. Um, um, but uh, before that, there's a problem of generalization. Right, Everything I've just said is a generalization about Russians uh, 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 as a whole as an undifferentiated group, which of course is a rather poor approximation of reality. Clearly, individuals are going to perceive power differently. Vernacular knowledge will hold sway on different people to different degrees. There will be different appetites for risk and differing aspirations for reward. These differences and the factors that cause them, of course, matter. Um, But methodological individualism, I think, comes with its own pitfalls, particularly if we want to take vernacular knowledge seriously. Uh, Vernacular knowledge, after all, is not an individual phenomenon. right? Um, It's vernacular because it's shared. And so any methods or theories that seek exclusively to isolate individuals and that focus their causal identification on factors that act on individuals as individuals are, in my view, going to miss things. Now, in a program of work focusing on what we refer to as the co-construction of power in Russia, Graham Robertson and I have attempted to square this circle at least partially by focusing on the psychological and social pathways that have shaped individuals' propensity to support Putin and his policies. Now, this co-construction does not operate without the Kremlin's direct involvement, but our argument is that it would not function either without the active participation of ordinary citizens. Top-down elements include the Kremlin's structuring of the political and media spaces, to give it the ability to present citizens with a vision of Russian society that delegitimizes difference, a classically authoritarian structure, right? Um, and, of course, the decisions that the Kremlin makes about the messages that it's going to send out into the public. My colleague at King's, Gunnar Sharafutino, has wrote, written about the, the, uh, the uh, salience of, of a sense of grievance for lost status and, and imperial identity, um, danger of, of, of renewed social crisis, um, comes up in work by Alexander Matovsky and, and, and there's, there's good work on a number of other things as well, including traditional Russian values. Uh, quote unquote traditional Russian values. The impact of these structures and messaging, however, um, Graham and I argue, is created within Russian society itself. Right? So the wedge issues that Putin introduced into Russian Uh, Political discourse in order to quash the anti-authoritarian protest wave of 2011-2012, issues including anti-immigrant sentiment, religious sentiment, anti-LGBT sentiment, broadly anti-Western sentiment, succeeded in regalvanizing a pro-Putin constituency, not because they convinced people individually, but because Russian citizens used them to reforge connections with one another horizontally, again, in the context of political uncertainty. Those Russian citizens who responded most readily to Putin's call uh, were those who were most attuned to their social surroundings, who consumed the most news media, and who talked about the news most with their social interlocutors, friends, family, coworkers, and so on. Uh, A similar dynamic underpinned the rally around the flag that lifted Putin's approval ratings after the 2014 annexation of Crimea. Here, too, it was the sense of interpersonal connection that emerged as Russians watched more news and talked about it more with one another, right, that generated this euphoric socio-political response for the Durkheimians in the room, a little collective effervescence is, is the way that Graham and I talked about it. Now the war. A similar process appears to be occurring with the rally around the flag uh, that we have seen uh, in Russian public opinion since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine began a year ago. Here too, um, again, the strongest predictor of Russian political sentiment seems to be the emotional response to the war itself. Support for the war and for Putin is associated with feelings of pride, hope, and joy, um, while opposition is associated with feelings of fear, shock, and anger. Moreover, it's notable that these emotional responses and, and the corresponding spike in expressed public sentiment did not emerge in the data, uh, this is published by the Levada Center, until several weeks into the war. Right? It wasn't immediate, but it waited until uh, an initial period right, in which Russian media coverage of the war had been subdued uh, and messages were mixed, uh, until there was much more consolidated messaging uh, from, from the regime. Now surveys, again, from the Levada Center, and we can have a conversation about what to think about surveys in in Russia, but surveys from Levada have shown broadly consistent orientations to and attitudes about the war, right? So attention to the war, which reflects the perceived salience of the war in people's lives, has fluctuated from a low of 51% of respondents in April of 2022 to a high of 66% the following month, highest among those aged 55 or older, Lowest among those aged 18 to 24, we've all seen these these numbers uh, uh, around. Expressed support for the war was highest immediately after it was launched at 80% in in March of 2022, was eased somewhat to about 70%. Now, um, more or less linearly, Um, support for the war, likewise, is highest among those aged 55 and above, lowest. Um, uh, sorry, also, highest among those who trust state television for the news. None of this should be surprising. If you get most of your news from state television, 86% of those are, are say they support the war. Lowest among those aged 18 to 24, uh, among those who primarily trust social media for the news, although even 60%, 67% of those support the war. Um, and lowest among those who don't support Putin, although that is a distinct minority. Or at least say they don't support Putin. Uh, the same patterns are broadly repeated by polling conducted by Russian Field and uh, and, and others. Right? Um, reframing the question as a hypothetical does create some softness in these numbers. Right? So when Russian Field asked respondents in November of last year how they would act if they had the ability to go back to February of 2022 and cancel the decision to go to war, 51% said they would invade anyway, and 33% said they would not. Now, delving a little deeper, Levada data have suggested shifting ideas about how the war should proceed from here. So in December of 2022, 40% of respondents said that Russia should keep fighting versus 50% who said that Russia should negotiate for peace, uh, which compares to 48% versus 44% in, in August 2022. So we do see shifts. Support for peace talks was highest among, again, the younger people, higher among women than among men, and again, not surprisingly, highest among those who don't trust Putin. Um, surveys from, from Russian field, again, have shown that, on the other hand, 70 percent, right, um, even though most of their respondents said that they would prefer uh, uh, that Russia keep fighting, 70 um, percent said they would support Putin if he signed a peace agreement tomorrow, which suggests that the bulk of respondents are looking for political signals uh, and social cues about what the correct position uh, should be. Indeed, Russian field data suggests that respondents tend to support the state whatever it does, right? even if the state's behavior is contradictory. So 74% of their respondents support said they support annexation of the four Ukrainian oblasts claimed by Russia. Um, but a plurality, 49% said that they supported the military withdrawal from Kherson, uh, and only 27% uh, uh, opposed it. Right? Um, 24%, on the other hand, avoided providing any answer to the question about Kherson uh, uh, altogether. Indeed, that's a, that's a phenomenon in and of itself. Right? Um, again, data from, from Russian Field, from Russia Watcher, a project at, at Princeton and elsewhere, reveal, um, I think, even more complexity in Russians' opinions about the war itself. Um, So in late November, early December 2022, 50 percent of Russian field respondents said that they thought the war was going well, which was down 12 percentage points from July. 33 percent said they thought it was going poorly, up four percentage points. So again, there's a gap, that eight percentage point gap between the decline in positive sentiment and the increase in negative sentiment reflects a growing number of respondents who are choosing not to provide Uh, a direct answer to the question, either by saying, I don't know, it's difficult to say, or I'd rather not answer the question at all. A similar trend appears in in the Russia Watcher tracking polls, which have shown a steady, if shallow decline in expressed support, but flat levels of expressed um, uh, opposition. Um, Taking another step away from expressed opinions about the war itself provides even more nuance. I think Russians expressed confidence in the righteousness and even success of the war coexist with the skepticism about how the war is being fought and the impact that it's having on people's lives, a skepticism that appears to derive from a high degree of proximity to the war itself. So at the end of 2022, 52 percent, fully 52 percent of Russian fields respondents reported having at least one relative or friend who had fought or was fighting at that moment in the war. Of these, only 38% thought that their friends and relatives serving in the war were being adequately supplied with uniforms, arms, and other equipment, while 50% thought they were being poorly supplied. Perhaps because of those impressions, and despite what might be expected to be powerful social desirability bias amid the patriotic fervor of of wartime, relatively few military eligible uh, Russian field respondents displayed any enthusiasm for joining the war effort themselves. right? So 8% said they would be willing to fight for free, 23% said they would fight if the pay was sufficient, and 40% said they wouldn't fight regardless of how much money was offered. Russian field surveys also revealed skepticism about the state uh, uh, as a source of information. Right? So despite statements from the Kremlin that the, quote, partial mobilization uh, in the autumn of 2022 had been completed, Some 45% of respondents said that they believed the mobilization was ongoing uh, versus 37% who took the Kremlin at his word. Similarly, only 30% of Russian field respondents said they trusted official data on war losses versus 59% who did not. Telegram channels have become the most popular source of information on the war after television. Television's at 40%, telegram's at 17%. But telegram far outstrips um, uh, television or any other media source as uh, a source of information about the war for those respondents aged 18 to 29 who were most likely to actually have to fight in it by a margin of 28% to, to 18%. Again generalizing uh, about Russians but when we break things down in other categories we see um, more nuance still. So it's, it's by now well documented that ethnic minorities and particularly residents of economically distressed Uh, republics uh, have been unusually likely to fight and die in Ukraine. Research by Alexei Bessudnov at Exeter University in the UK has shown that men from the North Caucasus are relative to their proportion in the overall population of the Russian Federation some 50% more likely to have fought and died in the war than our ethnic Slavs. Buryats and Tuvans are more than 600% more likely to have fought and died in the war than their Slavic compatriots. By the autumn of 2022, Kyle Markhart had shown that death rates um, were um, uh, sorry the death rates faced by minority soldiers had begun to depress levels of support for the war among these ethnic minorities, um, uh, particularly those ethnic minorities who had been overrepresented among soldiers uh, and and casualties. This, as we saw uh, in the uh, in the autumn of last year, did provoke protest. Uh, in some places around the country, um, creating dilemmas for regional elites. Should they try to fulfill the recruiting targets that the Kremlin was getting them, was giving them uh, at the risk of provoking further unrest? Right? Um, or should they quell dissatisfaction by effectively sabotaging uh, the partial mobilization? And we saw different regional governors taking different paths. So in Chechnya and Tatarstan, we saw elites quietly, carefully communicating their solidarity with local dissatisfaction and with little coercion on the side. Um, uh, on, uh, for, for good measure right? um, and negotiated effectively separate deals with Moscow. In Dagestan and Buryatia, by contrast, elites ordered the use of riot police and heavy-handed tactics to subdue pockets of protests and round up reticent uh, enlistees. In other respects, however, the incentives faced and assimilated by elites have been considerably less ambiguous. So Putin's early framing of opposition to the war as coming from, quote, national traitors whose removal from Russian society would be a form of cleansing, he said. Uh, And the passage, of course, as we all know, of draconian new legislation curtailing public and even private expression uh, of dissent against the war has set off uh, a repressive wave of of startling proportions. Since the beginning of the war, Russian authorities have brought charges for, quote-unquote, discrediting, and that's what the law says, discrediting the military against more than 5,600 people, They've identified 200 new foreign agents, most of whom were accused of working for the Ukrainian government, which clearly has lots of funds to to pay them. Um, Opened 23,500 misdemeanor um, cases on uh, political charges writ large and are filing felony cases on political charges at a rate of approximately one a day. Uh, In all, these have led thus far to 1,729, or at least at the time I was looking at these numbers, custodial sentences a varying duration, and 390 sentences of forced labor. Uh, Russia has also witnessed a rash of cases of demonstrative repression. In September, police raided the apartment of anti-war activist and poet Artyom Komardin in Moscow, raping him with a dumbbell, filming it, posting the video to social media. For good measure, they also tortured his girlfriend and roommate. In December, police beat Moscow State University professor and local opposition activist Mikhail Lobanov, similarly posting the picture to social media. A 19-year-old university student in Arkhangelsk avoided physical harm but is facing 10 years in prison on charges of extremism and terrorism for posting um, uh, anti-war messages to Instagram uh, and a WhatsApp group. Her contact details were posted uh, uh, online on government websites, and she was sent... Uh, a hammer uh, mirroring the one that uh, or rep- or similar to the one that uh, the Wagner group notoriously uses to um, execute deserters. Taking another several steps back, right? so despite the positive emotional dynamics associated with the rally around the flag I was talking about before I got to the demonstrative repression, the war appears to be having a mixed impact on Russians' broader Outlook. So at the end of 2022, the percentage of respondents to Levada surveys who said they could not predict even their short-term future stood at 51%. It was the highest level in that poll that they've been running consistently since January 2001. Such uncertainty is highest among people 55 and above. Lowest among people 18 to 24. The fact that that relationship between uncertainty and age mirrors the relationship between war support and age, right? So the people with the highest uncertainty are the people who are most likely, at least in terms of age cohorts. I don't have the raw data to actually run the correlation, but uh, in terms of age cohorts, right, suggests that express support for the war is at least in part a refuge from uncertainty, on the other hand, 2022, saw solid proportion of Levada survey respondents who reported feeling a sense of responsibility for the country as a whole rise to 37%, right? up from 29% in October 2021, uh, and what had been less than 10% for the entire decade uh, prior to 2018. So as Russia has got more repressive, right, this number has gone up. The proportion of respondents who said they felt they could impact events in the country has been on, on a similar trend, right? Taken together, these two trends reflect a growing sense of political inclusion, which cuts against what we might expect in an increasingly authoritarian state, but which I think is in line with the ideas of co-construction of Putin's political legitimacy, if this authority and legitimacy is actually being built within social connections, within society itself. Now, Looking beyond opinion, at least as much as we can without real access to the field and the ability to go to Russia and see what's happening, the behavioral response to the crises created by the war, and these are crises of emotion, crises of politics, of material welfare, and of course of, of military conflict itself, seems to be replicating the earlier patterns of involution that I was talking about at the beginning. Right, The kind of reliance on localized and individualized coping mechanism, mechanisms that undermine the social patience uh, in the 1990s uh, and aggressive immobility in the 2000s. Uh, as such, the uncertainty engendered by the war, even if the origins of that uncertainty lie in the Kremlin, right, has strengthened Russians' propensity to project and to perform political loyalty, at the very least. More probably, loyalty itself has become more important to individuals' relative to prosperity, right, to the strategies of prosperity and security, than it was before the war, precisely because Individualized coping mechanisms, right, and the relationships of trust and solidarity on which they rely have taken a renewed centrality in their lives, again, in the context of this of this political, economic, and social uncertainty. Um, The increased uncertainty generated by the Kremlin's coercive turn and by its war in Ukraine, and the increased propensity to project loyalty that this uncertainty provokes, I think, are mutually reinforcing. The public response to the partial mobilization launched in the autumn again of 2022, I think is a case in point. The mobilization met with significant resistance as hundreds of thousands of men facing enlistment fled the country and hundreds of thousands more sought to bribe their way out of service. What's more, in region, cities, and economic sectors where resistance was particularly stiff, as I already mentioned, local authorities were tacitly empowered to reduce their recruitment quotas. From the Kremlin's point of view, of course, the mobilization hit its recruitment target of 300,000 men without provoking a mass uprising or a sea change in expressed public sentiment. Indeed, the lesson the Kremlin is likely to have drawn from the mobilization uh, is that uh, uh, Russian society as a whole is available for a shift um, in the relationship to want a more permanent mobilization in which external conflict, whether kinetic as it is now or potential if it were to be frozen, can become the defining principle of the relationship between the state and its citizens on an ongoing basis, and that the Kremlin will not face resistance significantly as a result. But the same material uncertainty that drives involution and the projection of political loyalty also manifests in a broad dissatisfaction with the way the country is governed, even if that doesn't extend to an overt dissatisfaction with the man most responsible for governing it. So again, the Vada Center polling shows a sizable majority of Russian citizens. 83% continue, even in the midst of the wartime rally around the flag, to begin that the country needs change of one significant degree or another. 47% the plurality believe that such change should be radical. Um, now, unsurprisingly, support for change of one kind or another is highest among those who don't support Putin, but the general sentiment... right? holds for all socio-demographic and media consumption groups. The generalized dissatisfaction represents an amalgamation of a lot of different political outlooks. We would be mistaken to say that this is all some kind of liberal opposition. For some respondents, the calls for change focus on economic demands, such as increased salaries and pensions. For others, they want a change of power. Some, 10% said they wanted an end to the war. Only 3% said they thought that change needed to involve more freedom and democracy. But only 2% said that what the most important thing for a reformed Russian state to do was to win the war in Ukraine. So in this context, the fundamental difference, I think, between Russians who support the war and Russians who do not is neither sociodemographic nor even cultural or even expressly political in the way we tend to think about it. As the Russian commentator Kirill Rogov has has noted, people who inhabit the same... (coughs) Physical, cultural, intellectual spaces have radically different positions on the war. So the key watershed is the role of the state, the role particularly that the state and Putin as its chief symbol and representative plays in the construction of the lives of these individuals in their social surroundings. One group of people uses the state and Putin as a source of security. Using them as a convenient symbol by reference to which they can communicate their own trustworthiness, their own adequatness, and ascertain the trustworthiness of others in uncertain times. The other group uses a community of anti-state sentiment, often anchored around key independent media outlets, opposition leaders, and other cultural and discursive markers, for exactly the same purpose, but the other way around. The war as a result has sharpened the distinctions and the in-group, out-group boundaries within Russian society, and has raised the risks of heterodoxy to new heights. And yet, regardless of your politics, regardless of where you sit in Russia's interwoven socioeconomic food chains, of whether you oppose the war or support the war, um, or have no real opinion about the war, whether you get your news from Meduza on the opposition side or from Pyotr on the Kremlin side, The local, socially, remains a refuge from the national. It remains a bulwark against the uncertainty inflicted upon Russian society by the state and the only reliable source of whatever power as a Russian citizen you have. It's also the furthest extent within which you can imagine wielding that power. For the time being, then, my argument is that the war does not appear To have altered the processes at the heart of the relationship between Putin and the Russian people, or the vernacular knowledge about power and powerlessness, that structures Russian political behavior. And I'll stop there.